I want to share a quote with you that uh, I find significant. And it goes this way. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that you make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazardous, twisted road, in all the setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. As a pastor, I have been with many people in some very, very dark times in life. Some of those I would never mention in public or even share with another person. But some of those dark times are the family whose two-year-old drowned while they were on vacation. The husband whose wife left him saying, I don't love you and I never did. The couple whose adult son emptied their bank account to feed his opioid addiction. The young mom whose struggle with mental illness led her to take her own life despite her faith in Christ. And while I believe she's with the Lord, her husband, her child, scores of friends and family were left in agony, grief. And all of these people profess to know Jesus. But in the dark mists of grief and the twisted roads of pain, it can be very hard to believe that God is plotting for your joy. That's why theology is important. Who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be. As we look into the pages of Scripture and see what He has said about Himself and what He has promised, it is when our trust is in Him, who He is, what He has done, what He will do, that can allow us to survive even the worst in life. Because if there is no God, or if God is not in control, has no plan, then everything that happens to everyone is pointless and random. But if you know the Almighty Lord of the universe, that He is plotting for your joy, then no matter how messy and miserable the journey becomes, you still have great hope. The story of Ruth shows us this God who does not rest. That he is relentlessly at work for our good and for his glory. Now as we follow the story of Ruth, this is now our fourth week. Uh, there's been one setback after another here. In chapter 1, we uh, met a woman named Naomi whose uh, her husband and two sons left their home in Bethlehem to escape famine there. But they went to Moab. A, a country formed by sexual perversion and filled with idol worship. And there in that foreign land, Naomi's husband died. And there her two sons married Moabite women who did not worship the one true God of Israel. Through ten years of marriage, there were no children. And then Naomi's sons also died. Eventually, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Now that the famine is over, one daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. Ruth rejected her false gods. She committed to follow the Lord and to care for her mother-in-law. 
But Naomi, she was in a bad place. She believed that God was against her. Oh, she believed in God, but, but that he was mean. That, uh, and she said life was empty for her. She was bitter over her life. And if you've ever felt emptiness, like everything you valued was lost, then you can identify with Naomi. Maybe there's a past experience that left you drenched with bitterness, struggling in pain, uh, trying to treat a wound that just does not seem to heal. If you've had that experience, you, you understand, Naomi. And when you're overwhelmed by something so bad that it seems impossible to imagine that God is plotting for your joy. Bob was the uh, elder chair at the church I served decades ago. Despite being a mathematician, and I don't really care for math all that much, Bob was a good friend. He, he was helping me to lead this church through a huge transition. And then at age 52, he had a sudden heart attack and died. His wife, Lois, was left behind, a son in college, two daughters in high school, left to grieve. And, and certainly, the loss to his church family and to the community around. How was God plotting for Bob's joy and his family? Stacy's story is different, as all stories are. After college, she went to Cambodia uh, with a purpose, to share the gospel with people as she taught English to children, needy children. After several years of being a young single woman in another country, struggling every year to, to raise support for this mission, she was lonely, discouraged, and returned back to her home. Her heart was still with uh, those needy children, but now she's right back where she started. How was God plotting for her joy? Well, I'll share a little bit more of those stories in a moment, but these kinds of setbacks and losses are why Naomi found it so hard to believe that God was at work. In chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem with no way to support themselves, no money, no husbands, no food. Ruth goes to work in a field, which happened to be owned by Boaz, and unknown to Ruth, Boaz is not only godly, kind, respectful, but he's related to her mother-in-law. Boaz goes out of his way to help and protect these two women. So hope appears on the horizon, uh, but Boaz didn't make any moves at the end of chapter 2. Nothing had happened. In chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth took a faithful risk. Ruth asked Boaz to be her kinsman, redeemer, and according to the law in Leviticus 25, uh, when an Israelite family fell on hard times and, and sold the land, their nearest relative was to buy it back to redeem it for their impoverished relatives. And if the woman was widowed with no children, that relative was to marry her so that the family name could continue. Boaz wanted to do that, but there was a twist. There was a, a relative closer than he. Another man who was first in line to be the kinsman redeemer. And so chapter 3 ends with yet another setback. And still, though, Naomi and Ruth are resting in the hope that God is plotting for their joy. So now we come to the final chapter. Where first thing in the morning, after saying to Ruth, he will redeem it. 
But there's a relative closer. Boaz springs into action. We open chapter 4 and it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Why does Boaz go to the gate of the city? Because that's where the influential people were. They they gathered there to network and to make deals. And that was where business was conducted. And that was where Boaz could expect to connect with this closer relative, this man who has a, a more legal claim on Naomi and Ruth. Now in this story, we hear all the names of the main characters except one. We know Naomi's husband's name. We know the names of both sons, even though all three of them die in the very first chapter of Ruth. We know the names of both daughter-in-laws, even though Ruth is the only one that kept going. And we know Boaz. But we don't learn this guy's name, this closer relative. Boaz undoubtedly knows it. Bethlehem wasn't that big, and he's a relative. Most translations use the word friend to translate this. Uh, Boaz actually calls out to the man using a Hebrew idiom. Uh, A more literal translation would be, ha, such a one, or hey, so-and-so. It it might be like saying, yo, dude, in our language. Boaz does not use the dude's name. I've given him a name. It's not a biblical name. It's not in the Bible. I'll tell you what that is in a moment. But notice that Boaz, he's directing everything. You see how how that's going on in in these verses? He's telling everybody, do this, do that, sit there. He's on a mission. He's in charge. He's making things happen. Boaz is good. He's godly. He's a leader. He's influential. He's motivated by what's right in the eyes of God. And he's also passionate about what needs to happen. Verse 3, Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, uh, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So my name that I made years ago for this nameless guy is the weasel. Why? Because he's responsible to do something, and he does nothing. I mean, he's the type of person that just drives me crazy. I can't stand to see a situation that needs to be made right and witness those responsible to do something do nothing. That's the weasel. See, according to the law of God, the closest living male relative was to step in when poverty forced someone to sell their land. God said that when a man dies and has no son to carry on the name, that his brother, his closest relative, must marry the widow. God said anyone who withholds justice from a foreigner, a widow, or an orphan is cursed. And all of those things are true of Naomi and Ruth. And all of Bethlehem knew it. Boaz knew the story before Ruth even met him. And yet, this guy did nothing. Naomi showed up in a town with her foreign daughter-in-law, both of them widows. They had no food, no money. They had a piece of land, but you can't eat land. They needed a redeemer. And this guy didn't do anything. He didn't visit them. He didn't order a welcome basket. He didn't send a condolence card saying, my prayers are with you. He had a moral, ethical, legal obligation and did nothing weasel. Now, Boaz is very diplomatic in how he communicates. 
He said, yeah, I thought I'd bring this to your attention. Suggest you do something. No one else has the right to before you. And and if you don't, tell me because I will do something. And this guy replies, I'll redeem it. I'll take the land. And that's not how we want the story to end at all, is it? Will this guy be the hero and save the day? Boaz tells him, verse 5, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. See, up till now, the, the, the weasel must be thinking something like this. Naomi's an old woman. She'll never have a son. I marry her, then the land will be mine. Yeah, she's bitter, but I, I want that land. Boaz shows him the fine print in the contract. And it's not Naomi he has to marry, but the land had passed to her sons who are now dead. Now Ruth is the one he must marry. She's young. She could easily have a son. And that means the land would go to that son. And this guy would end up with nothing. He will have paid for land that wouldn't belong to him. He would have to marry a foreigner. And this complicates matters beyond what he can handle. So verse 6. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. So it's likely this guy was already married with children and that would mess things up. Having a young foreign wife would make Mrs. Weasel very unhappy or unhappier. And so now we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. The the, the hero is going to get the girl. And, and Boaz signs the contract. And all the elders and the gathered crowd are eyewitnesses to the transaction. In fact, they give a prayer of blessing over Boaz and his new wife. That's verses 11 to 12. And they pray she'll have many children, as many as the 12 tribes of Israel. They pray that the name of Boaz will be famous in Bethlehem. And Now, Boaz already has great standing there. Uh, but what they're praying is that the Lord will give many children to carry on his name. That means more than just one son, because that first son will carry on the name of Ruth's first husband. And that's when we remember another problem. Ruth was married for ten years without a child. Perhaps she cannot bear children. Maybe the story ends here. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Well, that was fast. They got married, physically consummated their relationship on the wedding night. God allowed her to conceive all in one verse. Very concise. It's a honeymoon baby, a son, and it needed to happen fast. Boaz is not getting any younger. When he went to his son's school concert at Bethlehem Elementary, some folks probably thought, how nice that Grandpa showed up here to support the family. Verse 14, Then the woman said to Naomi, The women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. This is so great, because these women are the same ones who surrounded Naomi when she returned home the year before, a year ago. Back then, Naomi had told them, Don't call me Naomi, change my name to Mara, which means bitter, because I'm bitter. God is against me. Naomi told the women she was empty. And looking at her life, this grieving widow felt like she had nothing. But now these same women are able to praise God for her. See, the story began with Naomi's loss, and it ends with Naomi's gain. It began with death, 
and it ends with birth. And notice where the focus is, verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now notice that although Naomi herself did not give birth, this son is counted as hers. This baby was the sign that God had not forgotten. This birth was evidence that God was plotting for her joy. She held the future in her lap. And the future is far greater than she could ever imagine or ever know. That son would be the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel, David. And far beyond that, from the line of David, a thousand years later in the town of Bethlehem, the king of all kings would be born. You see this genealogy and Boaz is circled there and Obed is next under him. And, and, and then this twisted line of generations all the way to Jesus, through King David to Jesus the Messiah. You see, Naomi held a much bigger part of the story than her mind could grasp. It was part of God's biggest storyline. That through this family would come the ultimate Savior of the world, the ultimate Redeemer. God was plotting not only for her joy, but for the joy of the world. This Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was the sacrifice for sin by His death on the cross. And as the Bible says, for all who believe in Jesus, He gave them the right to become the children of God. Now, of course, Naomi can't see that at this point. She's still a widow. She still has both sons dead, but she gets to cradle a little bit of that joy that's far greater than she can ever imagine. Now what the book of Ruth can teach us is that God's story isn't always a straight line. It's often a zigzag. Our lives twist and turn. We hit curves and detours and dirt roads and switchbacks and setbacks and and in all of that it's difficult for us to imagine many times that anything good would come but if we cast ourselves on our redeemer if we put our trust in the lord of the universe then that changes everything Because in all of those zigzags, God is at work, always is, and he will not rest until the job of redemption is done. When she lost her husband and her sons, God gave her Ruth. When they needed a redeemer, God gave her Boaz. When childless Ruth married Boaz, God gave them a son. At every turn, God was plotting for their joy. Let me put it in these words. That in Christ, your winding road leads to glory. The winding road that you're on, the the twists and the turns, it leads to glory. Uh, That's what the book of Ruth teaches us, that, that through Jesus, God is doing more in your life and mine than you can imagine. He's doing more with your life than you can imagine. When your faith is in Christ, everything you go through has a purpose. Because He's at work, you're connected to something far greater than yourself. He's writing a story bigger than you and I are. And you may never see, you may never understand in this life what that something greater is, but it's there anyway. Naomi and Ruth, they just saw a baby. He was a joy, a blessing, a sign of God's love, but it was just a small part of the grand design, a pinpoint of the plot, a fragment of the picture. That's all any of us ever see in this life. And that's why we must continue to trust, knowing that in Christ, your twisted, winding road leads to glory. Remember when we met Ruth, she was a Moabite who 
worshipped false god. She was married with no children. Her husband died, leaving her with nothing. That's a bad set of circumstances. But she came to love the one true God. And her life changed. Not just as a woman of, of noble character who married the hero and had a baby, but a woman whose name appears in God's great storyline. Some of you have a past filled with painful experiences, with bad memories. Please understand, it really doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. If you meet Jesus, everything can and will change. God is plotting for your joy. Like Ruth, you can have a horrible start and a wonderful conclusion. That's the beautiful story of redemption. Today is the day of salvation. And I invite you to come speak with me after the service today. Let me point you to the only Redeemer. Hope is found in Christ alone. Some of you know Jesus, but like Naomi, you messed up in the middle. There were some poor choices that took you away from God. I have a friend who loves Jesus. I've known him for years. We were in contact this week. Throughout the time I've known him, he's made some bad choices in life. He sent me a note telling me about his most recent struggle, and he said this, Red flags were there for sure, but I followed my heart and desire far more than listening to God. I'm so thankful that my friend admits his failures and and keeps turning to Jesus. Naomi went off-road when her husband uprooted the family, took them to a pagan country. Nothing went right there. Her husband died. Her sons married idol-worshipping foreigners. They produced no grandchildren. Her sons died. Naomi's left with nothing. But she still believed she was bitter. She was bitter and believing. And still God took that off-road experience and turned it toward glory. And we watch as, as Naomi went from being a, a bitter person to being a blessed grandmother. And the last scene of the story of Ruth is Naomi holding that baby boy, soaking in the blessing of God. She cradled a precious life that was part of a story greater than she could ever dream. And there was Boaz. This was a man of God who stayed faithful, a generous businessman, a kind employer, a stand-up guy. He was willing to do the right thing, the hard thing. And even at a later stage in his life, God had a crucial role for Boaz to play. And he was ready. He stepped forward. And his name is part of God's redemption story as well. In fact, Boaz is a great picture of God's love for us. Here's a man who's willing to to love the outcast, to, to rescue the outcast. And in a greater way, God has shown his love to all the outcasts of the world, all who fall short of the glory of God. And he redeems us in Christ when we turn to him, recognize our brokenness, and cry out to him. And I would just suggest that maybe God has you in a certain place at a specific time to play a vital role in a bigger story that you may never fully understand as long as you're alive. Will you continue to believe that God is plotting for your joy? In June 2006, our oldest daughter had finished her junior year of university and had just gotten engaged to Aaron. And uh, she was living with home, uh, at home with us for what would be the last time. One Sunday, as our family was walking through the hallways from one service to the other, uh, a young man stopped us. I didn't recognize him, hadn't seen him before. He started a conversation with our daughter while we awkwardly stood there. And, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I quickly realized that he was going to attempt to ask her out. 
And in the conversation, my daughter delicately mentioned her fiancé, and he retreated quickly. I felt so bad for him. And I wanted to know, who is this stranger who had the guts to, to ask out the pastor's daughter right in front of him on a Sunday? Turned out he, he wasn't a weirdo. He was a follower of Jesus who had recently moved to the area. And he was actually, honestly, looking for a godly woman. And he thought my attractive daughter might fit the bill. Some months later, discovered that he had met a young woman who had recently returned from teaching in Cambodia. And Stacy was now serving in our ESL ministry, working with Haitians and Laotians and Tamils. And a year later, I performed their wedding. In 2008, they started a business together and they committed 25% of the profits of that business to local and global ministries. And I had the privilege of discipling this young man and seeing him grow in Christ and then later dedicate their first child to the Lord. So, 12 years after Stacy left Cambodia discouraged, she and her husband are serving Jesus in that community and still give a percentage of their profits to ministry to children in Cambodia. Bob's sudden death was a loss for our church. Obviously, most devastating to Lois and the three children. And I'm not going to share what I saw God do in the years after that, other than to say that he was definitely at work. And eventually, that family could see that even through the grief, God was plotting for their joy. But wait a minute. What about Bob? He's dead. Psalm 1611 says that those who know the path of life will be filled with joy in God's presence forever. Through all the disappointments and detours, joy might not be realized in this life. It will never be realized fully in this life. But it will be fully realized when we see our Savior face to face. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The story of Ruth calls you to embrace your Redeemer. It calls you to repent of doing things your own way, to repent of your detours into selfishness, your disinterest and distrust of Christ the Redeemer, and to turn to Him. There is no other rescuer. By His death and burial and resurrection, Jesus has done all the work. Turn to Him. Call to Him. Trust Him. And when you receive Him as your one and only Redeemer, rest assured that your twisted, winding road leads to glory. And that's why Scripture says in Romans 8.18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, everything is part of God's greater plan. He's plotting for your joy. The road of your life and mine turns this way and that. It's not a straight line. It's a zigzag. There are detours and bandits and construction and bad weather. But for all of those who are in Christ, we are on a path of glory. And our God will not rest until the job of redemption is done. Let's pray. Lord, I can't begin to know the situation of each person in this place today. I don't know what they've been through or are going through or will in the future, but you know. And I would pray, Lord, that every single person here today would turn to the Redeemer, the one and only Savior. That 
for those who need salvation today, that they would turn to the Savior Jesus. For those whose trust is in you and yet are wavering or struggling through difficult times, may they keep their eyes on you, trust you even through the darkness of whatever is going on in life today. Lord, you are faithful and true. We give you honor and glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.